people are perplexing, as is often the reasons for the things we do. Many people undoubtedly have tried to live their lives as true to themselves as possible, but there are those who have decided for some reason to spice up the lives of the, those around them. For better or for worse, for notoriety or for the lulls, hoaxes have been an effective way to capture the attention and either make a point or just to trick people. Today we are going to be looking at some of the more interesting, in my opinion, hoaxes that are riddled throughout history, from the understandable to the insane, all that and more on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome back, my studious friends, and thank you for joining me for another episode. If you are new, thank you for clicking on this, and your hair looks nice. Thank you to those of you who have dropped reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podchaser. I appreciate every single one that we have gotten so far. And if you want to do me the kindness of leaving a review at any of those locations, that would be fabulous. That along with sharing the show on socials with your friends, all of that helps immensely. And if you enjoy it, why wouldn't you want your friends to enjoy it too? That's all for the begging I'm going to do today. Uh, You came here for a reason, and that reason is to learn about hoaxes. So let's get into it. Hoaxes. What is a hoax? This show. Thanks for listening. Just kidding. (laughs) Did I have you going for a second? I hope so. That. This is a really dumb joke that I put in there that I I felt real good about it. Anyway, uh, hoaxes. The Google machine says hoaxes are a humorous or malicious deception. Well, with that definition, 98% of human history is a hoax. Merriam-Webster says that the meaning of a hoax is to trick into believing or accepting as genuine something false and often preposterous. I think that fits pretty well with some of the tales I have for you today. I think you're going to like the spread. Real hoax charcuterie board, if you will. This episode will be similar to the experiments episode and then there's no real chronological way to break these down, but I do have it organized in some various categories. Although with many of these examples, they could fit into multiple categories depending on how you look at it. So there are forged items, fakes, photo manipulation, false memory syndrome, and just plain old good old fashioned trickeration. I'll also say that not everything mentioned is 100% verified as a hoax, but the likelihood could point in that direction with some of them. So with all that laid out, let's get into the first category I have selected religious hoax. Now I know I have the potential to be a total heretic, but I will forego that opportunity and instead of talking about religions themselves, I will talk about the people and the objects within different religious movements that have been either proved to be fake or that is a leading belief despite some believers refusing to accept this. While that uh, approach is admirable, the idea of you know, dissenting opinions or information presented to a religious person being the devil testing them has always been a big cop-out in my personal opinion, but that is neither here nor there. I want to start out with one of the most famous and probably publicized items on any religious movement. That's right, we're talking about the Shrek collectible glasses from McDonald's. No, but could, <laughs> could you imagine a whole podcast episode about an elaborate hoax involving these as a supposed religious item? I can now, but that's not what I wanted to talk about. In the year 1354 C. CE, historical evidence of something so holy, so remarkable, that it has led to so many, so awful their great history channel episodes. A knight named Geoffrey de Charnay uh, claimed ownership of a large cut of linen that supposedly been draped over the body of a once crucified Jesus. Christ, specifically. I'm not sure how many Jesuses that were ever crucified, but I'm confident 
He could not have been the only one. Either way, this linen was displayed and exhibited as one of the final objects to touch the supposed messiah during his lifetime. Following the debut of the later dubbed Shroud of Turin, reaction was mixed to say the least. France in the 14th century would have been a great place to unveil something of such religious magnitude. The issue coming in the way of some local bishops who disagreed with the authenticity of this item. You've been on the internet for any length of time, you probably have seen images of it. It is 14 feet long and three and a half feet wide and has a negative of sorts of a man around five foot seven. Markings of the shroud would have been corresponding to the wounds of the crucifixion. The stains created this pattern and when you look at inverted images of it, you can see the face of a long haired bearded man, uh, arms crossed in front of him. You know, it's really, really compelling and probably even more compelling back in the ages when you couldn't read or write to differentiate the truth from fiction. Which makes, the sen uh, which makes sense that the you know, first major denouncers of the Shroud were, uh, was a bishop, which you know would have been more educated than the average bear at the time. In one letter, the Bishop of Troyes said of the Shroud, It was cunningly painted, the truth being attested by the artist who painted it. So, rather quickly, the Shroud was being refuted as a as a real relic, but that did not stop many from worshipping it through the years. Anti-Pope Clement VII allowed the Shroud to be used in worship, but namely as an icon or representation, which I think speaks to the early indicators that this was not legitimate. 1578, it was moved to the town of Turin, which is why it has the name Shroud of Turin. As science advanced and speculation grew, eventually the Vatican gave three laboratories small sections of the cloth to test in 1988, and all three concluded that, you know, the carbon dating of the shroud put it between 1260 and 1390. Obviously, this is a couple years after Jesus would have been crucified, which, you know, is thought to have been around the year 30. So, of course, if you're familiar with the, you know, story of Jesus, you know that he was laid in his tomb with strips of linen covering his body and that a cloth was wrapped around his head. Unless the strips were 14 feet long and three and a half feet wide, then maybe that makes sense. Strips of linen in my mind are like those wraps you see on sprained ankles and things like that. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. There's also the fact that testing done concluded that the blood was pigment and not actually blood but i think that it's okay if you think about it as an art piece it's kind of effective in that it makes people imagine the body of christ post-crucifixion and it's you know really compelling in that way either way you know many many history channel documentaries and all these all those kinds of shows <laughs> really like latch on to the shroud of turin for for whatever reason maybe just because it makes good tv i'm not 100% sure on that, but they do like it. So, either way, this is a kind of dip your toes in kind of hoax because it's not like a massive amount of people that go, oh yeah, this is, there's this absolutely Jesus, but there are some. And then there's also, you know, the official Vatican stance of it being a tribute and not an authentic relic where they, you know, should worship it as an icon of the times and not really as the thing that touched Jesus itself. So, which is wild because the Vatican does like to hold on to some stuff that's, you know, questionable. To say the least. You know, this does kind of open the floodgates in terms of of the religious relic bit of hoaxing, where you often had kingdoms, especially back in the Middle Ages, you know, back when religious fervor ruled over people. Things like relics were used to inspire and instill fear as well. Of course, many of these objects were hard to authenticate, but there were often times when supposed real relics were copied, forged, and then those copies might be the only ones to survive. Also, you know, you live in a time when it took months to go to a different kingdom. You know, who's who's really going to tell you that one, one thing's fake and one thing's real? Or if there's even multiple 
of the same thing. You wouldn't know, right? And then there were just the, you know, the fun ones uh, where who knows why they wanted to, but we have relics, uh, relics stipulated that might exist, like Jesus's foreskin, which, you know, why? Even if there was some way to preserve something like that for that long, does it make things like extra special to have that? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Some religious relics were obvious as fakes, especially to people at the time. John Calvin, the 16th century theologian and Protestant reformer, talked about the massive amount of fake relics popping up, believing that as the world grew more corrupt and the likelihood of falsehoods increased, he stated on the case of cataloging and the religious uh, relics, he said, but in this short treatise, I am not able to accomplish what I particularly desire, for it would be necessary to obtain catalogs from all quarters, that it might be known what relics are said to exist in every separate place, so that they might be compared with each other. In this way, it would be made manifest that every apostle has more than four bodies, and every saint two or three. You know, I... I like the sentiment of what he's saying here. The obvious knowledge is that common sense would tell you that the sheer possibility of having so many authentic relics is slim at best. Another great example is that of Saint Rosalia. Saint Rosalia was born in the 12th century, around 1130 in Palermo, Sicily, which is in Italy. Uh, despite her noble Norman lineage, she chose to abandon her privileged, privileged life and become a hermit, residing in a cave in Mount Pellegrino near Palermo. In solitude, she dedicated herself to prayer and penance seeking a profound connection with God. She lived in a seclusion for 12 years. She made this decision, then 12 years she lived in this cave and then died. In 1624, a few years after that, uh, her relics were discovered in the Mel Mount Pellegrino cave after the villagers saw visions of her during plague that was occurring, uh, which then led to a sanctuary in her honor. These visions inspired a hunter to track down her remains, using the visions that she was showing him to find the bones. And this is, you know, that's, that's how they found it. Saint Rosalia is renowned for her legendary role in saving Palermo from the plague that I just described, a miracle still venerated in the city. Now the saving in the, of the city comes in the form of when her bones were found and brought to the city, the plague began to dissipate after they, you know, after they did so. Unfortunately, these bones didn't actually end up being her bones. Uh, the hunter brought, you know, found some bright white bones up on the mountain. Awesome work, dude. But these bones belonged to a goat. That's right. The holy bones of a goat saved the Italian city from a plague. These bones are still very much on display, even with this realization. In 1825, a British geologist named William Buckland examined these bones and then realized that they were goat bones. So that's pretty cool. You know, who doesn't love sacred goat bone? Almost 200 years they worship goat bones for saving them from a plague. That's probably just their, you know, pre-vaccine bodies getting a herd immunity or something like that. Honestly, still many worship these bones, so I don't, I don't really know what to tell them, but it is what it is, I suppose. <laughs> Other religious hoaxes include that of forgeries, uh, similar to those perpetrated by Odid Golan, who, you know, this guy's a recent involvement in the story, but he's been mired in controversy. This man, as recently as 2012, you know, which is five years ago, and I don't care who says otherwise, but um, <laughs> he was acquitted in 2012 for forging relics. However, in the acquittal, the judges did not confirm or deny if the forgeries were authentic or forgeries, because they were not after that. They were, they were trying to determine if he himself forged, like made the forgeries. And an Israeli antiquities authority determined that they were fake. The relics in question, well, one, a stone coffin uh, marked with the inscription in Hebrew saying, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. So that's that's a pretty big find, right? The, you know, the, the whole brother of Jesus thing, that's kind of a big deal. Um, the dating on this box is around the correct time too. 
but, 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 the inscription is the forgery part in this case. The brother of Jesus part was added, which, you know, honestly, you could probably spin the original transcript. It's impressive enough, in my opinion, that, you know, people wouldn't ask too many questions or they'd be like, the mystery. I appreciate it, you know, but he was acquitted, like I said, of the forgery because there was no proof he himself did the forgeries, um, but he was charged with stealing artifacts. He also reminds me of the Sam Rockwell character, Don Vardine, a uh, religious artifacts collector in this movie of the same name. And it's, it's a pretty great movie. I think you should watch it. Um, Sam Rockwell, he's a, he's a treasure. Anyway, I think it's pretty obvious that there's you know, always people trying to pull one over on others, especially when it comes to historical objects. The University of Oxford estimated there at any given time over 100,000 antiquities for sale online that are valued over $10 million collectively, and as much as 80% of those are either fake or stolen. It is interesting, given the many advances in dating objects, that it would be you know so high but you got to remember that there's also a bunch of people who have a blind faith in things and they, they hear or see on the internet sometimes to a fault and also there's probably people who just don't care or just know they're just like well this thing says is jesus's toenail clippers and <laughs> by golly i'm gonna buy it anyway similarly to how many people believe in you know the goat bones of saint rosalia for way too long uh, this next item has many people twisted in it to this day unfortunately the belief in it also means hatred towards a very large group of people the protocols of the elders of zion is a book that is one of the most hate inspiring pieces of literature that has presented itself in modern history if you're unaware this quote-unquote book alleged allegedly was quote-unquote discovered by a russian quote-unquote man no uh, by a russian man and distributed after finding it to alert people of the Jewish master plan for world domination, essentially. This book is still being propagated as fact by people all over the world who believe this is something that could be real. The Alex Jones types of people, which is insanity to me, especially when you hear this next bit. So, when presented in the early 1900s, distributed through Russian newspapers, nobody was the wiser that this 24-point world domination pamphlet was actually hodgepodge of plagiarism and racism. They were presented as meeting minutes from some secret meeting in the Zionist headquarters held around the same time, which doesn't exist. This document was spread throughout the world, even got to the Americas in uh, 1920s. Henry never changed my method of worker privileges. Ford even paid for 500,000 copies to be distributed through his own private newspaper. A move that drew praise from people who nowadays you probably wouldn't like getting praise from. Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. No secret that Hitler loved Ford, but this instance I was very unaware of, mostly on the Ford side. Does not surprise me that Hitler would be about sharing the protocols of Elder Zion, right? So, these protocols have been spread far and wide and across many religions and languages, having, having around four years to spread before the first debunkers came. In 1921, the London Times published their findings of the proof that the protocols were nothing more than a forgery of a parody. The parody? The dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. Is that too long of a title? Probably. The dialogue is actually a French political satire written by Maurice Jolie, an attorney who wanted to share his disgust of Napoleon III. In this writing, the two famous philosophers share a conversation in which no anti-Semitic language is even present. Why use two dead guys? Well, it was a literary device that we have seen used many, many times before, actually. 
Uh, Dante's Inferno is the first one to come to mind almost immediately. This piece was written this way, however, due to it being illegal to criticize Napoleon III publicly. The London Times called it a clumsy forgery, which <laughs> 1920s English, you might as well say every curse word known to man. That's clumsy forgery. That's that's a, that's a serious burn, really, for them back then. Despite the now present knowledge of these protocols being forgeries and bad ones at that, people still use them for their political gain. The Nazis, of course, would you know, still be using these uh, protocols as fact and distribute them as such, to which they would meet some legal challenges. Uh, two Nazis in uh, Switzerland were caught and fined in 1935 for distributing what is called libelous and obvious forgeries and ridiculous nonsense by the Swiss judge presiding over the case. The U.S. Senate also declared them to be fabricated in 1964. Little bit behind the curve, but you know, <laughs> yeah. <I don't> know. <laughs> Gosh, I wouldn't read into what that means, but st stating that uh, they were gibberish and criticized anyone for using the same propaganda as Hitler. Still, the protocols are massively believed to this day. This has only increased with the internet and mass communication, all stemming from a satirical critique on Napoleon's nephew. Nobody really knows the reason behind its inception other than, you know, the hatred towards Jews in the, in the years leading to the Russian Revolution. So that's pretty sad, just the fact that it is you know, confirmed to be fake on multiple occasions, even like so close to its release, you know, when the Russian Revolution happened right after World War One, right? So you, you have this thing that was introduced in 1907, I think. And then, you know, by 1921, the London Times was already calling it fake, which is pretty quick, especially back then, you know, for something that it's not like they went out and printed 6 million copies instantly. Like it, had to slowly go through and move and yeah anyway and then then there's still people who are like yeah you watch a video of alex jones today he'll talk about the zionist <laughs> just dropping it like all right man anyway let's get us to a more interesting and light example of hoaxes in religion this next inclusion is actually really interesting in terms of just creation and execution level Supposedly, in the 13th century, a monk named Herman broke his monastic vows and was sentenced to death. In a last-ditch effort to save his life, Herman the Recluse, a.k.a. Herman the Hermit, which, what a great name. Anyway, the Czech monk struck a deal and said he would write down all of the human knowledge into one book and one night in an effort to save his life. Apparently, he was procrastinating pretty hard because halfway through the night, he realized he couldn't do it. He couldn't just, just couldn't get it done. And so he prayed as as one monk ought to do, prayed, but he prayed to a specific angel, and, you know, this may or may not be the fallen angel Lucifer, anyway, he prayed to him for help, which is pretty, uh, taboo back then, and the story goes that the book was finished and his life was saved, the book in question is called the Codex Gigas, Latin for giant book, which is not, <laughs> not a super fun or original name, but the fun name, that is described for this book is called the devil's bible due to a large drawing of the devil on one of the pages and the story obviously behind it this book is like massive too 36 inches long 20 inches wide nine inches of bound text colorful designs and you know text that holds continuity from the first page all the way to the last contents include the old and new testament different medicinal texts as well as the hebrew alphabets and you know some other texts that were popular at the time the real mystery is the completion of such a massive work without errors or continuity issues in, you know, the writing or the artwork. The analysis and scientific theories around the Codex Gigas are that it would have taken, you know, the writer five years writing non-stop and 20 years with breaks to complete it. Um, and I, I've seen those numbers range anywhere from five on the low end to 25 on the high end non-stop as well. So uh, I don't know. 
<laughs> it took it take a long time. And with, you know, how well all of it flows together, you can see why people believe the theory of a one-night creation is such an impressive feat. I suppose one could argue that it is also a testament to the absolute insane amount of time people had to complete different tasks back then. You know, another old book that could in all likelihood be a hoax is one called the Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript is named after the man who bought it in 1912, Wilfred Voynich. Before that, it had passed through different hands throughout history. It's said to have been made in the 15th century as confirmed by radiocarbon dating during the Renaissance, but nobody knows who wrote it or what language it's in. It's all this weird coded uh, words called the Voynich script or Voynichese, which is an interesting take on it. Inside, there are these, you know, super intricate drawings of plants, stars, people, all sort of strange stuff. The topics uh, covers ranges from plants to astrology in the images we don't know what it says um maybe even alchemy going on that was a big thing back then but nobody's able to figure out what the words say similarly to the codex gigas the book is made of vellum which is animal skin parchment this one on the other hand is not very big me measures about 9.3 inches long and 6.4 inches wide and lots of really smart people have tried to crack the code but so far nobody's succeeded now right now it's sitting at yale university's uh rare book and manuscript library in the united states where it's driving researchers absolutely bonkers there are all kinds of theories about what it could be some say it's a hoax others think it's lost language or maybe it's real scientific work that's been forgotten you know even with all the digital scans and technology we have today this manuscript still keeps its secrets it's like a real life history historical mystery that just won't give up any answers and you know <laughs> there's also some this uh, when the aliens came down they gave this guy this secret language i did see an article that says they might have tracked down you know one of the earliest sales of it uh that it was sold for 600 pieces of gold gold florins which is pretty expensive and kind of uh kind of shows its importance but also people might said it might have been a part of a set which is kind of interesting anyway other religious hoaxes can be included in the many many cult lies told to secure blind faith from others but these you know these ones i really liked that's that's why i included these these religious based ones so with that i want to move into the next fun section creature feature time the surgeon's photo taken in 1934 at Loch Ness in Scotland is one of the most famous and debated images of the Loch Ness Monster ever. It shows a creature with a long neck and a hump emerging from the water and is often likened to a pre prehistoric plesiosaur. The photo's notoriety contributed to the Loch Ness Monster's fame but also sparked controversy. Over the years it was revealed likely to be a hoax involving a model attached to a toy submarine. In 1994 one of the participants admitted to staging the photo in 1999. A book was released which explains explicitly how the photo was fake. They used, like I said, a toy submarine and then uh, they made a model out of wooden putty or wood putty to create the shape of the hump and neck of the creature. Supposedly did it because they enjoyed practical jokes and then gave the photo plates to a friend who had them developed and he sold them to the Daily Mail. And, you know, despite the debunking from the one of the people involved, Surgeon's photo remains a symbol of skepticism and, you know, kind of a reminder to critically examine extraordinary claims. You know, in the digital age, people continue to search for evidence of the Loch Ness Monster, but this photo serves as like a historical example of the importance of scrutiny and evaluating such mysteries. This photo, taken in 1934, was not the first instance of Nessie sightings. You know, in January, of that same year, a man named Arthur Grant was visiting the lock and claimed to see the monster. A sketch was given to the zoologist who, after learning what Grant had seen, contemplated that he described seeing an otter, which is a far cry from a giant, <laughs> giant monster from the Mesozoic era. 
knew about Trufity. South Park reference for anybody who's interested. Anyway, he did see it at 1am with only the moonlight to, you know, illuminate his vision. So maybe, maybe he did see an otter. I don't know. You ever been to a lake and there's only some moonlight on it and you kind of for a minute don't know how far away you are from the water? I don't know. Might be something to it. Another sighting the year prior was from a man named George Spicer who apparently saw the creature cross the road in front of his car. He described it as being visually similar to dragons and or maybe a prehistoric animal. He also was the first one to really describe it as, you know, how we see it, the modern plesiosaur image that we have in our minds. Columbia University disagreed with his versions of events, however. Uh, in 2013, they declared his story to be fake, <laughs> which is wild. That's almost 100 years after it happened. They're like, no, this guy's full of it. They stated that he had infused visions of a monster that was depicted in a movie that had captivated the world when Sean uh, when Spicer had his sighting. King Kong! King Kong had the theaters and the London theaters in that same summer and featured a long neck water dinosaur. This is the precipice of the dinosaur monster, which, you know, connecting to the Loch Ness Monster, which is kind of interesting to see. Because before this, the sightings ranged from a whale-like beast to a large stubby-legged animal. You know, the furthest dating back comes from the actual 6th century, which is pretty intense. The depiction, uh, the depiction from that comes from writings from a monk who wrote about the life of St. Columbia, or no, Columba, not Columbia. In these writings, we have St. Columba who was staying with the Picts at the time, who told him of a man killed by the water, uh, by a water beast in the river nest. That's right, the river is actually the source of the monster, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so I guess St. Columbus scared the monster away after signing the cross with his hands, you know, and not, you know, not permanently, apparently, if uh, people have been seeing it so often over the centuries after. So that's pretty cool to see how far back sightings of a monster, you know, quote unquote monster in the Loch Ness, air, in the Loch Ness area have gone. But we have other cryptids. What, <laughs> what are we doing? Let's talk about some other cryptids. The Patterson-Gimlin footage of Bigfoot. In 1967, Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson were riding horses in the Northern California wilderness to find evidence of the supposed Bigfoot. Like most good hunters, they brought their handy-dandy camera to capture any evidence of such creature. They scoured Bluff Creek in response to some suspicions placed by a man named Ivan Sanderson, who was a major researcher in the field at the time. Now, this reminds me of the people who chase down the crazy leads of the Hollow Earth or like... Eh, other weird 18th and 19th centuries at the time like this guy's a lead researcher in bigfoot but what does that mean you know what i mean anyway coincidentally patterson also wrote a book the year prior to the filming of the bigfoot of you know, their famous filming of bigfoot titled do abominable snowmen of america really exist so obviously he's super into it right patterson very into bigfoot anyway in october 1967 they captured footage of a strutting female bigfoot apparently they were able to gender the thing <laughs> their words not mine because of the uh breasts so i don't see it when i look at it but, but whatever um anyway they you know and they weren't they weren't like right next to it in the film but i guess you'll find out he got closer but over the years film has been cleared and you know stabilized and now watching it, i think it's more obvious that it's not real but there's still some true believers out there i even watched a video where they used ai to stabilize and clear up the footage even more which is pretty interesting i highly recommend if you're in the middle of this section pause this go check that out because it's pretty interesting they described having seen a creature hiding behind some bushes and shrubs standing across the creek bed depending on whose story is told after seeing it, the horses reacted, Patterson settled the horse, jumped off, grabbed his camera, and ran after the figure. He allegedly also yelled after 
Muir yelled back to Gimlin to cover him, meaning with his rifle. After this is when the footage is from, which I think speaks to the suspicious nature of this footage, which I'll speak on in a minute. After they tracked the creature further, they lost it, decided to return to their camp, make plaster to cast, uh, for, for plaster to make casts of the feet. People ever since have been debating it heavily. People around the film have even debated it. While Patterson was a lifelong Bigfoot hunter, Gimlin was pretty hush about his sightings during the encounter, but eventually announced that he himself had doubts on the whole ordeal. Is it possible that the dissenters themselves are out hoaxing the hoax? It is logical to think that people jump on the trending, you know, a trending story to be part of it. Think of all those weirdos that claim to have killed JonBenet Ramsey or claiming to be the Zodiac. Special effects people came out of the woodwork confirm or discount the film many were convinced some of the people to see the movie at uh universal studios and disney uh were among those a man representing the documentary department and some technicians of universal had uh, viewed the film and said the task of recreating the film would be next to impossible disney exec at the time ken peterson said they wouldn't be able to replicate it either there is another instance of them showing the film in 1972 to some disney animators and they said this film was beautiful but then when they said that the film had to have been done in a studio and were told it was actually filmed in the wilderness of california they simply shook their head and walked away which i don't know what that means that that could mean anything but that, <laughs> that's one of the things that they said i will say it is pretty interesting because a lot of people say that you know disney was probably not the best people to ask about replication since they don't really deal with this sort of thing regularly rick baker the man who designed harry from harry and the henderson stated that it looked like a cheap fake fursuit john chambers on the other hand who did the planet of the apes costumes from literally the year after the film the Patterson Gimlin film came out or was released uh stated from a nursing home that he was you know he was not he was good but he wasn't that good when asked if he created the suit however he did say in 1976 that if it was a man in a suit it was tailor-made one of the most interesting comments in my opinion comes from the one and only Stan Winston who did work on the Terminator movies Jurassic Park Aliens The Thing the Predator movies Iron Man Edward Scissorhands you know guy with credibility he said it's a guy in a bad hair suit sorry <laughs> <laughs> which i love i just love the quote like yep sorry also stating that the suit could have been made for a few hundred dollars to a thousand you know this estimate was way smaller than the ten thousand dollars that uh ellis ellis berman who worked in special effects and costume design had given there's also someone who says they did create the suit uh that man is philip morris he stated in 2002 that he sold the suit to Patterson but was hesitant to share this before because it could hurt his credibility as a costume creator in the business. You know, they like to keep their secrets. He also stated that Patterson asked for tips on, you know, how to make longer arms, wider shoulders. And he mentioned using some football pads and holding sticks to elongate the arms would probably be your best bet. Another man who lent horse, uh, Another was the man who lent horses to Patterson and Gimlin, Bob Hieronymus. He came out and said in 1998 that he was the one to wear the suit and that he wore football pads and special gloves to make his arms longer. This was four years before Morris had made the same kind of statement. So kind of interesting, but also you could be like, well, maybe, maybe Morris heard that and was like, I guess you could put some, I don't know. <laughs> You could, you could go all day with that. There's some discrepancies in Bob's story with uh, the material of the suit. Him and Morris disagree on what the suit was made out of. I think a lot of this is people trying to get their name into the story, but looking at the details leading up to the actual filming are more telling to me 
if I was to make a decision on it. You know, the words around Patterson as a man have been less than stellar, many describing him as a con man of sorts, which is not great. That combined with the fact that he wanted to film a docudrama after his awesome ab abominable snowman book, one which he had been filming since May of 1967. He had rented a camera and he was even, uh, cops even came after him in October to get the camera back because he had rented it in May or early April and still hadn't returned it. The docudrama was of cowboys hunting Bigfoot with the help of a Native American tracker and Gimlin played the tracker while wearing a wig. And the story was to be following the stories of the 1924 Ape Canyon incident, which one in which miners involved with some kind of conflict with a group of ape men near Mount St. Helens, which is this is a story that's that's out there. Like these miners say they encountered ape men. So he's filming this thing. And then later that same year, he filmed an actual Bigfoot. So that's odd, right? Odd, oddly enough, the same thing happened when I was filming a documentary on the Loch Ness Monster. And then later that year, I had real footage of the very creeps pretty wild, right? See what I mean? Like it's too convenient. The other issue for me comes from the fact of the interaction. They describe it hiding in the bushes or across the creek bed, watching them, aware of their presence. And then it comes across the creek and looks at them three times while they are hollering and jumping on and off their horses. The first time comes before the film catches the, the creature, the second time on film, and then the third time after. Still, it casually walks, you know, right in front of them. No real concern for them at all. You know, I'm no expert on the woods by any means, but I have been in the wilderness enough to know that you are making sounds that they are describing having made. You know, then whatever animal is near is probably not going to, you know, appear to be so casual with them. Even if they are animals in urban areas, you know, that see humans more often, they still have some skittish tendency. And this is the woods, and it's supposed to natural habitat, and it's not even concerned at all. Like, I don't know. <laughs> that to me, combined with the fact that they were making a movie, and then its behavior on film, just kind of seems like it's probably, you know, I don't know, I wasn't there, but I don't think it's real. Anyway, <laughs> how about some legit hoax material? Have you ever heard about the rabbit mother? And not just a mother of rabbits, but you'll find out. Okay. <laughs> In the 18th century England, a woman named Mary Toft was pregnant, and after exhibiting symptoms of a miscarriage, she remained pregnant, which is, you know, a lot of people were like, all right, Mary, let's go, yeah. Keep on trooping. I don't think anybody said that, but that's what I imagine in my head. They're like pumping her up. Anyway, going into labor on the 27th of September in 1726, I want to say, uh, she was, uh, began giving birth to rabbits. Now, although the first birth was not witnessed by anybody, she gave birth to a creature resembling a rabbit, but its organs were outside of its body. Not, not what you want. Two weeks after she gave birth to another, uh, you know, but this time it was like a an actual full rabbit with fur and everything. Many were very confused, <laughs> as they should be, and had to investigate. So a man named Samuel Molyneux, uh, yeah, Molyneux and uh, Saint Andre witnessed the witnessed a birth of a rabbit torso. After the birth, did some tests, took a piece of a lung, placed it in water to see if it would float or if it was to sink. The idea being that if there was air in the lungs, it would float. And it did float. So they believed that the rabbits were bred inside her fallopian tubes. So, so yeah, we got <laughs> good medical <laughs> licensing going on right now. So yeah, um, there was uh, further investigation done. And when one such investigator was not allowed to assist in the delivery of said animals, he took some parts that had been recovered and found that they had been cut with a man-made instrument. <gasps> the man who determined these, uh, the man who was to determine this was Syracus Owlers? Owlers? I don't know. That's a wild name. 
Cirrus's? I don't know. C-Y-R-A-C-U-S. What? Get a, get a new name, dude. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, this guy with the weirdest name, uh, appears to be the only one who actually doubted the story. St. Andre interviewed those who, who had witnessed the phenomenon, many believing, believe that this was to sow doubt in Aller's findings. You know, in the weirdest turn of events, St. Andre took Saint Andre, Saint Andre, a tournament in French. Uh, Saint Andre took control of this operation. It would only let people observe the phenomenon under his supervision. And then one man, John Marbray, came to the conclusion that women were able to give birth to what he referred to as pseudokin, which is a small fable-like creature such as the ones Mary was birthing. That's the fakest word I've ever heard. Pseudokin? Really? He also believed that some women were able to conceive and birth different creatures by being influenced by their dreams and that being too close with the household pets might make these children end up looking like pets. So that is pretty cool. You're probably thinking like, yeah, that guy must have been a lunatic who just kind of happened to see what was happening. Maybe a neighbor, right? Wrong. He, he was a physician who practiced and even wrote a book titled The Female Physician. So that's good. These births continue all the way into December of the same year, which would have been my first indicator of a fake, but... You know, I guess if you have no idea how the body works, like some of these physicians, <laughs> or you're a physician who thinks it's entirely possible to have household pets imprint on the fetus inside your body to give them cat heads, then I guess, who knows? The sky's the limit on that. You know, this is where the story gets super weird. <laughs> As speculation arose and people began to question, uh, she was kind of arrested a little bit, and so was her midwife. And after a few days of interrogation, uh, she confessed that after her miscarriage, while her cervix remained open, an accomplice helped her insert rabbit parts, cat parts, into her womb. What the heck, dude? Like, <laughs> I get wanting to be famous, but why? Why? Why in the world? The good news is that the outcome from this meant that the physicians got mocked by the public, and honestly, rightfully so. Physicians who were not even involved in the issue had to make defensive statements that they were not involved, and that they did not believe her story. The St. Andre I mentioned, uh, uh, who doubled down heavily on this miracle was also mocked pretty heavily and then he kind of went into a weird spiral of madness uh not madness but weirdness because that Samuel Molyneux who had accompanied him died and then Saint Andre married that guy's widow and then Samuel's cousin accused Andre of poisoning Samuel so that's that's its own bag of cats really but um not pertinent to the story but just what an absolute mess of a story this is like eventually mary uh returned to her life and had a daughter daughter a few years later this is also not the birth pun intended of the phrase the rabbit died in reference to pregnancy but i did think it was when i first heard about it another fun story of some fable creatures is the fairies of cottingley all began in 1917 when two young girls elsie Wright, age 16 florence griffiths age 9 used elsie's father's camera to take some photos near a stream in cottingley what makes this tale truly magical was that they claimed to have captured fairies in these photographs as evidence of their existence these photos a series of five showed these ethereal beings in various poses dancing and even playing musical instruments here's where it gets more intrigue. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a brilliant mind behind Sherlock Holmes, saw these photos and was like, I support everything about this. I believe wholeheartedly in the Cottingley fairies. <laughs> he thought they were real. And that, that endorsement sparked a lot of controversy. And, you know, a lot of people to this day, there's people who are like, man, eh, I don't know. But, you know, a lot of people were convinced that it was a hoax. I think, you know, especially at the time in the early 1900s that it was easy to see them as real 
but looking at it now, knowing what good and bad photoshops look like seems pretty obvious on their authenticity. Well, in uh, 1983, the truth finally came out. Elsie and Francis admitted that they had in fact faked the photographs. They used paper cutouts of fairies from a popular children's book to create the images. They did maintain that they did really see fairies, but were an unable to take photographs of them. Despite this revelation, the Cottingley fairies photos still hold a special place in history. They inspired books, documentaries, even a 1997 film called Fairy Tale, a True Story. Um, there is something to be said about these photographs, ability to capture the imagination of so many over such a long time. Another example <laughs> of around the same time is the Cardiff Giant, which is centered around the discovery of a petrified giant in Cardiff, New York. Ten foot tall humanoid creature was unearthed on October 16th, 1869 during a well digging operation on William Stubb Newell's property. Initially this caused quite a stir, with many people believing it to be an ancient petrified human aligning with biblical accounts of giants. One of these such people, P.T. Barnum, <laughs> who, you know, you know, the renowned showman and uh, Hugh Jackman impersonator, circus owner, <laughs> tried to buy one of these giants, was unsuccessful. Since he was unsuccessful, he just made a replica and exhibited alongside the original to cap capitalize on the public's fascination. The man who was able to purchase the giant from the man who found it uh, is named David Hunnam, a banker from New York. Thought it was silly that people believed in Barnum's forgery, and this led him to be the one to utter, there's a sucker born every minute, which has been often attributed to Barnum instead of about him. However, after scientific examination intensified, Doubts about this uh, Cardiff Giant and its authenticity arose. December 1969, it was revealed that the Cardiff Giant was a hoax orchestrated by George Holt, a New York tobacconist. Tobacconist, that's a great word. And obviously, William Stubb Newell. Stubb. They had <laughs> commissioned a stonecutter in Iowa to carve the giant from a large gypsum block transported to Cardiff and pretended to stumble upon it. They uh, buried it in, uh, in Stubb's yard. <laughs> so... Pretty cool. Uh, they even went as far as to create fake pores in the skin to make it real, you know, look realistic. Now, Hole's, mo Hole's motive was rooted in his skepticism of religious dogma, and he aimed to challenge the unquestioning acceptance of religious beliefs. The religion of the, the revelation of the hoax sparked controversy and legal battles over ownership and profits from exhibiting the Cardiff Giant. Despite its deceitful origins, the Cardiff Giant endures as a famous example of a 19th century American hoax and serves as a reminder to approach extraordinary claims with, you know, a little more critical thinking and skepticism similarly to the fairy. Also, similarly to the Piltdown Man, you know, except, you know, with a tongue-in-cheek type of commentary on a particular group this seemed to be one that was you know wanting to make a discovery that would make people believe in forever this led to the crafting of a hoax around the findings of man findings by a man named charles dawson in 1912 he found part of a skull that he believed to be human-like this seemed to be a response into the findings in germany in 1907 with the heidelberg man which brought some excitement in the form of learning about you know, the past of humans. Of course, this is 60 plus years before the discovery of Lucy, so people were very excited about tracking down the origins of man. The issue is that many were attempting to forge these discoveries, such as the case with the Piltdown Man. Named for the place, it was discovered near Piltdown in Sussex, England. After quote-unquote finding a few more pieces of the skull, Dawson shared the discovery with Smith Woodward, who worked at the Natural History Museum in London, and this guy was stoked about this discovery. With his stamp of approval, the find quickly gained momentum. Only a year later was a paper publishing that said they believed the skull to be a human cranium combined with a chimp or ape mandible, which is exactly what it was. <laughs> uh, it went mostly unnoticed, though. 
And even when, you know, up-and-coming French paleontologists made the observation of an ape canine tooth, which barely anyone seemed to care, it wasn't until 1953 when it was officially busted. Also, weirdly enough, before that, Arthur Conan Doyle, yes, the same one <laughs> from the fairies, also was in support of this. So I guess the theme is that if Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, believes in something, you can pretty much bet your life that it's a hoax. <laughs> the last bit of hoaxes I want to discuss is that hoaxes within the art world. Staying within the realms of chimps, we have the art of Pierre Brasseau. 1964, Pierre Brasseau debu debuted art in Sweden. Four paintings to be specific. Paintings definitely stirred some discussion in the art world. Many people impressed by the creations. Critic named Rolf Anderberg wrote of the artist, Pierre Brasseau, Pierre Brasseau paints with powerful strokes, but also with clear determination. His brush strokes twist with furious fastidiousness. Pierre is an artist who performs with the delicacy of a ballet dance. However, another art critic also said, only an ape could have done this. <laughs> and they, they hit the nail on the head. The invention of Pierre was a hoax orchestrated by Swedish journalist Dake Oxelson. I'm going to go ahead and say that I pronounced that perfectly. Who knows? Uh, who, who wanted to see how good critics were at their job? I think a lot of people who view modern art have a similar idea of like, well, you know, I could do that or it looks like a monkey did it. But some of the best critics seem to be able to spin the most random things into an eloquent description, manipulating words to provoke responses and those who trust their judgment. I sympathize with the idea of attempting to trick people like this. So Axelson had befriended a handler of a chimpanzee to help him with this task, providing paint and canvas for Peter. Uh, who was the chimp in question? Peter at first struggled to differentiate between the paints and food, preferring to eat the colors at first. <laughs> and, you know, that's hilarious. He did eventually get the hang of it and started to paint pictures that Axelson felt could be used in the, in this ruse. Peter apparently also liked the paint, uh, the blue paint the most because of the way it tasted and subsequently would use blue more often in his work, which I think is pretty fascinating. Another part of Peter's creative process was the abundance of bananas near him at any given time while he's painting. One article I read stated that he one time ate nine bananas in 10 minutes while painting, seeming to fuel his creative efforts. How similar him and I are. <laughs> Crazy. Um, this also makes me think of the song, The Memo, by Father John Misty. The first verse of the song goes, I'm gonna steal some bed sheets from an amputee. I'm gonna mount them on a canvas in the middle of a gallery. I'm gonna tell everybody it was painted by a chimpanzee. Just between you and me, here at the cultural low watermark, if it's fraud or art, they'll pay you to believe. Now, I love this song. <laughs> but, but it definitely speaks to the fact that people want to feel included in things like high art, even if it is nonsense, which a lot of people argue it is all on nonsense anyway. You know, a similar thing happened in 2005 when a Dr. Schneider, who was uh, the director of the State Art Museum in Moritzburg, had been presented with an image of a painting and was asked who she thought had done it created the painting and she said she believed it to be an artist by the name of Ernst Ney who does these you know massive blotches of color works um and turned out that it was in fact a chimpanzee named Bongi <laughs> or, or Bangai I don't know um <laughs> who was a 31 year old female chimp and Dr. Schneider said I did think it looked a bit rushed when informed that it was indeed done by a chimpanzee. So, do with that information what you will. The next bit is not a uh, specific example, but a compilation of some in the way of art forgeries. First real idea uh, for this came from 
the documentary I once watched called uh, Who the F is Jackson Pollock? 2006 documentary that follows a woman who stumbles across a painting that she buys at a thrift shop simply because she likes the colors and she wanted to give it to her friend who I guess was going through it at that point. Ended up being uh, you know far too big to even fit in the friend's apartment so she ended up trying to sell it at a uh, yard sale of sorts local art teacher happened by suggested that this piece could be pieced by jackson pollock and this whole documentary is the quest to authenticate um and identify this painting struggle being that without a signature and the fact that it was bought at the thrift shop makes it pretty hard to authenticate uh, others believe that it did represent the action painting style of pollock but did not have pollock's soul like other works did indicating that it could be a forgery now that is the real you know that's that's it right art forgeries that's the that's the hoax that i'm talking about if that wasn't clear <laughs> um there's a whole documentary called made you look on netflix that follows art forgery and that's really quite interesting um you know there's examples of people who made entire livings off of being forgeries uh forgers they weren't forgeries they were forgers who made forgeries english is dumb anyway <laughs> uh but the one i wanted to highlight is not modern art even remotely but from the renaissance that's right renaissance forgeries let's go dude uh in the early years of the masters of the, in the early years of one of the masters of the renaissance still unknown at this time a poor starving artist story goes that the artist created a replica of a famous piece that he would then age by having it buried the replica was then sold to a cardinal who believed it to be authentic and very old eventually the cardinal found out but something curious happened he was so impressed by the craftsmanship of the forgery that the sculptor was allowed to keep his pay but his accomplice was forced to give up his michelangelo i'm sure you've heard of him one of the ninja turtles uh no he <laughs> was one of the sculptors in question and or he was the sculptor in question uh and not only did he get to keep his money but he was invited by the cardinal to join him in rome it was a big help michelangelo needed to get his career off the ground you know, unlike in modern times the renaissance typical art market was respectful to those who could make solid replicas of existing works of course the real creativity is you know rewarded too but they love their you know new old thing they didn't really have the <laughs> the print they didn't really have the print uh, factories that we have now that'll just crank out you know a hundred replicas of the mona lisa and a minute you know what i mean so michelangelo has some other suspected forgeries but um none that have been proven to be forgeries but honestly since his work is in sculpture i think they're still all pretty you know impressive even if he is my least favorite renaissance artist um, yeah so jumping back to the future for this last example and there's a little bit of the attitude of the cardiff man as well as the you know uh pierre peter chimp in it it also has david bowie and what story isn't improved upon with david bowie in 1998 party was hosted in honor of the discovery of an artist who had died in obscurity in the 1960s who upon deciding to take his own life burned all of his artwork and then leapt from the staten island ferry no recovery of a body had ever occurred and since he destroyed his artwork nobody ever really knew who he was that was until it was discovered that a few paintings of this artist had who had studied in the same places as willem de kooning or jackson pollock and the like you know so why the party well a book was written on this short life which uh beginning in 1928 and ending and ending in 1960 david bowie was in attendance as one of the few owners of original nat tate work he even did some readings from a book at the party uh you know people at the party ran the gamut of memories of this artist and you know his works and this terribly sad story that he had and well, they all recognized his name and uh <laughs> and you know more parties were planned premieres of the collection and the book had been planned as well the truth in fact that nat tate was not who it seemed 
he was not anyone really he uh he was a, fic a fictitious artist crafted between journalist william boyd david bowie and jeff coons the goal was to present an artist who was not real and see what the perception of the value and critique on said artist could be it was a targeted assault on critics and viewers alike who would rather pretend to understand something rather than admit they do not know something they felt they should definitely did have a the desired effect although they really only got it for a short time seeing their you know effort at work william boyd had compiled images backgrounds stories and created artwork that was presented all that for people to act as though they genuinely genuinely knew this artist i know myself have done the same thing not really out of fear of not knowing but just kind of to move a story along after sensing a rather impending diversion to further explain something when i could just give the speaker the benefit of the doubt or i could just look it up later on my own either way i find this experiment to be both effective and very interesting in general also provides a really nicely wrapped up idea on hoaxes in general which is i think people will always want to be uh, not want to be people will always be fooled a little bit with them in general if not for the any other reason other than the fact that they want to so desperately be included in on something that's why things like false memory syndrome is so fascinating or why people refuse to acknowledge not remembering something correctly or at all in a way of making it out to be some mandela effect the mandela effect itself not even like a official like scientific phenomenon coined by a random internet blogger who just was confused because she herself specifically without any influence outside believed that nelson mandela had died and then a bunch of other people were like yeah me too and that's where it spurned from uh so yeah you know you don't remember how a certain thing was spelled and now it's you know everyone else's problem you know you're bad with actors faces and suddenly you're in an alternate dimension with a bunch of other people who are also you know unable to differentiate one actor from the other <laughs> Other people want to be in on it, so now somehow everyone but you is seeing creepy clowns walking around in 2016. I think it is one of those features of our mind that makes us feel left out, that you know we need to be in on something, join in on something, a little bit of FOMO maybe. Even if it is, you know, just to have an opposing opinion on something simply because people are talking about it. Have you ever noticed when you're on social media and a bunch of your friends are somehow discussing something that wouldn't even make page four of the local papers and in the comments there's always one person who has to let everyone know how cool they are by not knowing who or what the main topic is. Both instances in this example I think are fueled by the same mechanism in the brain that lends itself to be fooled by hoaxes. I'm no main, I am by no means a brain expert nor did I play one on TV, but that is my armchair psychology analysis. Anyway, let's recap some fun facts we learned today. Firstly, people love religious relics, like artifacts, relics in general. I'm sure there are some people who, if you showed them a video of an ancient looking relic and how it was made, they would still find a way to rationalize it being authentic. The ride or die belief is wonderful. Unfortunately, it can be manipulated by people as well. Also, how the still circulating myth of the protocols of the elders of Zion has been debunked many many times and people refuse to let it go worth noting that many of the people who believe in this are also likely to be holocaust deniers so what a wonderful camp to be in the great lengths at which uh it was you know necessary to bring some of these hoaxes to life the codex gigas as impressive even if it did take 25 years to make you know like so much dedication that's like it's, it's so much dedication i mean there was not a lot to do back then but still pretty cool i went pretty hard on the patterson gimlin bigfoot footage but honestly it is pretty cool even if it was fake you know people will be dying believing in this footage i i still don't know uh i still don't see any wild animal behaving that way after humans making all sorts of a ruckus around them you know especially when it is said to be you know being in cover behind foliage at first and then walked across this no man's land of perfect landscape that could be you know fully seen 
I don't know, man. And the rabbit lady? I think I'm gonna have nightmares for weeks about just the people around her. Like, it's lucky anyone survived in England from that time. Doctors were wacky. And uh, all of the art hoaxes made me happy, of course. You know, being a, art being a passion of mine. It's fun to read about the pretentious snobs getting tricked. I did leave out, of course, so many because... There are so many hoaxes. And who knows? Maybe eventually around two could be, you know, in that we could do sometime down the road. But as for this week, we're done. I think it's pretty fun and interesting as well. Next week is going to be really interesting for a solo topic on like one individual person. Joan of Arc. That's right. Maid of Orleans. Excited about this one. And I even get to share one of my favorite moments from a French class in high school, which is very specific. <laughs> Now that I'm saying that out loud, uh, I will be digging into the reality of her life rather than the myths and legends surrounding her. I mean, I'll obviously talk about those, but we're going to get to the, the real nitty gritty. Identifying the setting that she found herself in before turning, you know, before turning to her life, her mission, and her legacy. I think it will be rather fun and exciting and I hope you all enjoy it. And I guess I hope you all enjoy this, this episode and every episode, you know, <laughs> but I hope you enjoy the new ones too. Either way. Jones up next. And that's it for our episode on hoaxes in history. Thank you again for listening, sharing, reviewing us wherever possible. Please, if you have any topic suggestions, hop on Facebook or send an email to remedialscholar at gmail.com. Go through all the links in the link tree in the description, and we will see you all next time. Bye.